minds. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Sinkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, rootworker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com. And that is M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A dot com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And she is a tarot reader, medium, and healer. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Gary Wayne. He is the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy and... If you're a regular listener, you probably know this guy, and if not, you're in for a ride. Thanks for coming on again, Gary. Well, thank you for inviting me back to your co- your podcast, and uh, so happy to be able to talk to your audience, and hopefully we can raise a few more eyebrows in our discussion. I think we generally get into things <laughs> that uh, <laughs> will raise a few eyebrows. Yeah, we sure can. I mean... You're one of the few people that I talk to that can dive into conspiracies, UFOs, Nephilim, angels, demons, giants, the whole deal, you know, and you put it all together in like this nice, neat, or I don't know if it's a neat package, but it's a package. It's a package. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes a bit of a surprise package, but a package. It is. Yeah. So, uh, you know. One thing I was looking about the, the giant thing today, and one of the things oh, that yeah. we, like here over in the U.S., there's like these mounds, you know, they say they're Native American right. mounds, yeah. but there's also other people out there who say that these mounds were made by the giants or that they're mm-hmm. they're burials for the giants. Do you think there is anything to that? Well, I think there probably is. So those mounds they go back further into history than most people want to acknowledge mm-hmm. and of course the more research that comes out there's a lot more information and almost now becoming a bit of a paradox as to did the people there used to be this theory that uh, first nations in north central south america crossed the land bridge and then migrated south and then there was an idea that no, the, there was a migration from the Maya, the Quiche Maya, the Aztecs up north. There's a relationship between all of these American civilizations, both North and South and Central America. It's just not certain which order, you know, because they, they find new evidence and then it sort of flips things back. But the, the consistency, though, is that there are two things. Two is there's the gods that they worshipped, and then three, there's the demigods mm-hmm. and the giants that were part of that mixture. So you have, like, the serpent mounds, for example, which I think is probably the most famous ones, and there's no erosion on these mounds, which is absolutely extraordinary. So there's a technology that went into it that is unaccounted for. It's absolutely massive, which seems to be something sort of beyond what you would have hunter and gatherer type of civilizations having 
a capability for if you accept the standard dogma. There's astrological or astronomical alignments, probably both, that are embedded in there. There's sacred geometry that's embedded in there. Then you get that serpentine imagery, which brings up, you know, the White Snake Clan, which is the settlers after the flood that the First Nations of North America accredit for, and also the Kishimaya is the first settlers. And they had, they were white-skinned and looked like snakes to a certain degree, which is why the Hopi called them the White Snake Clan. And you also have the serpentine gods that are associated with the civilizations, whether it's Quetzalcoatl or all the other different names that go up and down, well, you know, all through the Americas and all thought to be the same sort of pantheon of gods. And these are the feathered serpents. These are the plume serpents. These are seraphim angels. These are dragon creator gods. They're the same things known all around the world, which also brings into the idea of you know, the common legacy of pyramids and these mounds that, and imagery in terms of how they're built, why they're built, and all the other things that are located into them. So you get all of that sort of intermixed, and then you get another wave of giants that seem to do a migration. And these are tendingly to be more the redheaded uh, variety with elongated skulls without the uh, sutures in them. And they weren't the monsters of prehistory, so there's obviously, I think there is a dilution of size and maybe of the look to a certain degree throughout the generations as they have to inter, seemingly intermarry with humans to continue to procreate. And so uh, what they're finding is that there are, are a number of burial sites in association with those kinds of giants, just as you get those Peruvian skulls in South America, mm-hmm. uh, red hairs again, same seemingly variety that's different than the other humanoids and different tribes of the First Nations. But I think that's a later uh, event, and I think that these mounds are older, but that they would have recognized the same type of worship sites with the astronomical alignments, with the imagery, and recognized them as the holy sites of the same sort of gods that they would have been uh, worshiping and representing. So I think they would have used those as burial sites, but I don't think they were created as burial sites, I guess mm. is the short story. Why do you think the giants were using astrological alignments? Yeah, well, it all depends on whether or not one wants to assume or put into play that the giants were building these monuments. Uh, so there's a lot of people who subscribe to that. Uh, a lot of people would subscribe to the idea in terms of this genre that the, the, the sites are older than the giants. But I think there's probably a little bit of both. And what we do know is both before the flood and then again after the flood, you get megaliths that are being built. Yeah. So all of it is in honor of the gods. So in, in the giant sort of culture, if I can put it that sort of way, and in their religions, let's say with the Rapiu or the Rapiam of the Ugaritic texts that are worshipping Baal and the Baalim and the mother goddess uh, Ashtaroth, who they accredit for creating them, and they want to bring them back because they're having this fertility issue um, to, to create more giants. Everything they did in the development of their religion and then in the development of their knowledge was to honor their pantheon of gods. So everything that was built was built in honor of them because they felt that they were the offspring of the gods, 
and therefore the divine representatives as their offspring on earth. So you have that sort of interrelationship. So and the, that's both before and after the flood. So the gods that they were worshipping are the, or the beings that created them. Those were the Nephilim, correct? Uh, no, the Nephilim no. are the giants before oh, the giants. flood. Yeah, a lot of people will call Nephilim uh, gods. That's uh, not quite accurate. So the word Nephilim, that's the male plural. Nephil is the Hebrew singular form. But it's rooted in another word, nephal, as in to fall or to mm. prostrate oneself when, when you go down. And you put the I am on there, and that's nephilim. So the fallen ones, which I am is male plural for one. So when you have nephil, that's like the giant ones or the tyrant ones, as you could translate that. The uh, terrible ones comes from the, the Hebrew word erit with the, the male plural as eretim, seraphim as the serpent or dragon angels, seraph, I am male plural, cherubim. They, they all have that sort of, and you have that understanding as the word as, as, as ones. So um, the Nephilim were offspring of the Nephilim in Hebrew, uh, and the offering of the Nephilim of the Shemaim or the heavenly ones. So these are uh, similar terms. And you get something like that that happens in Greek mythology mm -hmm. with the Titans, for example. So you have the Titans of heaven and the Titans of earth. So the best example I can provide would be that's written in a number of accounts, particularly in the Atlantean accounts. You have Poseidon, who marries Clito, who's a human female, and creates uh, Atlas and nine other giant kings of the Atlantean kingdom in Atlas is referred to as both a titan and a hero, so a giant and a titan. So you have titans of the heaven, titans of the earth, same in Sumerian mythology. You have the watchers of heaven, the watchers of the earth, or the Anunnaki of heaven, the Anunnaki. It's a common sort of understanding. They're closely related as being the offspring. That's a lot. <laughs> it's confusing. I always find it a little confusing. When the, when the beings, like the, when they fell from heaven, the fallen angels, mm -hmm. like one, like where is heaven, and where did they, like how did they, you know, where did they fall from, yeah. and how did they, like I always assumed that they had a non-physical form. Did they actually have a physical form, and how did would they have arrived here? If they did have an actual physical form. Yeah, that, there's, there's a lot of questions and a lot of information there, so let me sort of <laughs> dissect it. So, biblically, from where my biases comes from, um, is that there are three heavens. Uh, there's a heaven that is the firmament that has everything from the sun inside. Then you have the second heaven that's everything outside the distance of the sun. However, somebody wants to argue how close that sun is or not, not really relevant to, to my definition. And then you have the spirit world where God and the angels derive. But you also have another location that's in the earth that's in another dimension that people know as Hades or Sheol or the underworld, the netherworld, and when all sorts of different sort of names for it that, that go around the world. That's another interesting sort of aspect of this. So let's now, though, begin with the spirit realm and angels and gods are spirits in their natural form where they're originally created 
in the in what the Christians and Judaic understanding is is they're the realm of God. And so he creates these beings. So they're also called stars in the Bible. So just as when you see a star fall from heaven or the worshiping of the stars, they're represented in biblically figuratively as stars. And so each star is also representing an individual uh, angel. And then you have like seven wandering stars, which are typically the seven that are put in for the moon, the earth, Venus, the four, you know, the seven local mm-hmm. sort of lights in the sky that they would associate their, their, their gods to. And again, in all different polytheisms. So you have that sort of idea that they're falling from that heaven and understood as above. Having said that, though, keep in mind that you have uh, this area called uh, Sheol and Hades and all the other names that I mentioned that is known in polytheism as their heaven, where the fallen ones will take their abode as heaven after the fall. So you have uh, these these angels that you know fell from the earth. In other words, they they fell to the earth or were uh, ostracized to the earth, just as Satan has talked about falling from heaven into the earth in, uh, in Isaiah 14. And so these are the fallen ones. This says that's why it's important to understand that that term anaphilim. So uh, I, I'm not sure I remember all of the questions that you had, had asked in there, but I got I sort of got. Locked into the detail of of of, of yeah. who the stars the, are when and, he when he yeah. when, when he, they suppose oh, the how angels they fell like form? like were they physical yeah. form were they angelic yeah. still non non physical so, so the other dimensions that have Hades in heaven where God abides it's it's a spiritual realm it is a another dimension and so these beings can come into the physical realm as witnessed in the Bible with angels, as witnessed with, with gods around the earth, as witnessed as the gods that are written about in the Bible. And they can take any form that they want. Just as the Bible says, you have female gods as goddesses and male gods, and they can take any form that they want. So they have a choice of being in this world in their physical uh, essence, or which is basically understood as an opulescent essence, or they can take a physical form to interact with the world. And that's called an oiketarian in, in Greek. Um, and it's uh, hooked into the Bible in two words with habitation from where the angels left heaven from. And the house in heaven, in, that was in Jude 1.6. And then in 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.2, it's the house in heaven. And that means a dwelling place for the spirit. And you need a dwelling place for the spirit in the physical world if you want to interact physically. And so they would have to create a soul and a body to do so. And then the spirit merges with the soul um, as the oiketarian and the body. And by doing so, then they create their own DNA. And they have a spirit that is immortal. That, And so with uh, a copulation with a human female or a female goddess with a human male, like what happened, let's say, with... Uh, and Akedon and or, or I mean, sorry, Enkidu and or Gilgamesh, because um, they're offspring of mother goddesses and a human female, and his father is Lugobanda of Aruk Gilgameshes. So you have this ability to recreate. When you do that, you pass on some of those traits that are in the physical DNA that they've created. So giants are going to look like 
their procreators in the beginning. So when you get serpentine imagery of kings around the world, they would have taken on that serpentine imagery that uh, their watcher seraphim angels would have had. Now, if they were the offspring of another watcher like a cherubim, they would take on the trait of, let's say, a raven or an eagle, because it's one of the four heads, or mm-hmm. the or face of the man. It could also be as in a dark-haired uh, Nephilim before the flood. Uh, it could also be with a lion head, because that's another face, or it could also be with a bull head, because you have a face of a bull. So when we see cherubim taking a form on earth, as with the Anunnaki, you see basically two forms with the Anunnaki. One is the face of that raven eagle that's on Sumerian reliefs, and you have the exact same image only with a human's head, just different faces of the the same watcher. And then you've got these sphinxes and carobs around the Middle East that basically depict all four of those faces, but only one at a time, and it's got that sort of Trubin-like body, including the wings. And those are, again, a depiction of a Trubin taking a form in that sort of format. So they would produce offspring that looked like them. So when you get into the Kishamaya and their accounts, of they have demigods called the Zabelba. And these are owl or eagle or bird-faced giant demigods. And they had one that's really interesting that was called the House of Camazots within that group. And this is all in the Popol Vuh, so we're not going into mythology here, actual holy books of the Kishimaya. And that is the House of the Bat. So when you Google Camazots, for example, and I don't know who put it up, but it goes right to this picture of a Batman-type suit. And I wonder whether there's... And that's, you know, superheroes are a reflection of the ancient Nephilim. Mm. That's what a hero was. It was the offspring of a god and a, and a human female, um, or and vice versa for uh, a goddess and a, uh, and a and a male. And so you also have giants that look like lions uh, that are around the world. Biblically, we have the lion-like men of Moab and Gad and Arioch, which is means lion-like. That was one of the kings of the Mesopotamian tribes. Uh, of giants fighting in the War of Giants in Genesis 14. You've got the Ermohlu and several other uh, names of these types of beings in Sumerian and Egyptian mythology and reliefs that are uh, depicting these giants. And they're basically a lower class than the serpentine ones, but more warriors. And then, and I'm not sure what kind of angel this would be, but, you know, Anubis... Uh, created as a jackal god, a, mm-hmm. a dog-like god, created uh, offspring just like them and in great numbers, as the Egyptian mythology goes. And they lived in a city called Sinoopolis, which means dog city. And Sinocephaly is the term for the dogmen mythos that's out there. But you get these dogmen being accounted in Greek history, in Roman history, in accounts of explorers going to India, going to China. And you also get these other bird uh, Nephilim in the Southeast Asia, and they're called the um, the Tengu. 
and particularly, and that's T-E-N-G-U. So if people Google that, you're going to see these bird face type of warriors that taught the martial arts and, and things just like the Nephilim did in, in other accounts. So you get a strong sort of legacy of these gods reproducing after their image. And it's because even though they're spirit beings, they have the ability to take a physical uh, trait. Biblically, for Christians out there who probably have their heads spinning at this point in time. <laughs> um, <laughs> believe me, I was there at one time. <laughs> uh, you have the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Just before the Sodom story, you have three individuals who look like men. One is the angel of the Lord and two are other angels, and they're going to visit with um, Abraham. And Abraham at first does not recognize them as being angels. And so they're completely human form. They interact. They eat, they touch, they talk, they do everything that we can. And then after that, two of them go on to Sodom and Gomorrah and they want to have sex with them. Now, we don't know whether that's homosexual sex because they're in the physical form of a human. But what we do know is they wanted to have sex or they wanted to have maybe have women have sex with them. Or they wanted them to change their form because they knew they were angels, even though they looked like men. They understood them as angels come to judge Sodom City. So that's just a couple examples of biblical examples where we know angels can take a physical form and walk around unknown if they wanted to be. But we also get forms where they look like men, just as in the Sodom story, that they look like men, but they're recognized as angels. So they may have been more of a shining aspect to them that would denote that. Hmm. So since this happened so long ago, and that DNA was you know, introduced into the human gene pool, does that mean that we are all relatives of these fallen ones? There's certainly going to be a reasonably large percentage, um, whatever you want that percentage to be. There's one manifestation that is understood as the RH negative blood, and the ancient alien mythos will take that to aliens, and there's a lot of thought in this genre that that is the bloodline that's introduced when the giants intermix. And they had to intermix, as I said, they had the fertility issue. And the terrible ones, as Isaiah 25 and Ezekiel 32 calls them in a couple other chapters in the Bible, the definitions for these erites or the eritim was that they had fertility issues and they had um, problems having babies. So to survive, they had to intermix with humans and then you get that dilution. And and so then the question gets to be is how far does that dilution go? RH negative is in about 15% of the population on most surveys around the world. So if that's the only indication, then it's not that big. And I'll come back to why that might be the case. And a lot of people say, well, no, it can't be the RH, RH negative idea because it's missing the D antigen. And you can't, if you're adding something to the bloodline mix, how could it be missing something? Like it's, it's just sort of, it's an oxymoron. Well, it's not the blood, right? It's the genes. Um, and the genes manufacture the blood types. So it's the gene that they would call it, the fairy gene, as they call it in some occult circles. Some of them call it the Elvin gene. Some of them call it the LB gens of the Europeans or the Julia gens of the black nobility of Rome or the um, uh, gene of Isis, as other people will call it. So, um, And that's the gene that passes on. And so RH-negative blood through the genealogy 
doesn't always produce generation after generation. It can skip depending on the other makeup of the of, of the genealogy. So you have this fertility issue and this need to reproduce and this need to keep your genealogies to show that you are the divine representatives on earth and the right to be the nobility class and to rule people throughout the earth throughout the earth and they would tend to intermarry as much as they could not only interfamily like with the Egyptians were really focused on intermarrying in around a certain family but over time you develop bloodline diseases so they learned over time not to do that and some of those diseases are hemophiliac disease that affected the czars for example uh significantly or Habsburg jaw which is another one of uh, of the Habsburgs and people can google that if they want to get a little bit more information on it but it required bringing in outside bloodlines so there's two things going on they want to survive and they don't want to have these diseases but they also want to have as pure blood as possible so if you're in the royal nobility class, you're only marrying outside of those bloodlines when you have to rejuvenate those genes. And so there's always going to be a dipping down into that uh, to help stimulate that. So, you know, roll that forward to today. You have King Charles III, who originally married Diane, who had some Sinclair and Stuart bloodline, but not really ennobled. But there hadn't been a lot of intermarriage through the direct succession of the Windsor used to be Hanover bloodline from Germany in a few generations. So they reached a little bit further out, but still within sort of a bloodline, but less pure uh, family to, to rejuvenate. Um, and uh, so there's usually fallout if they go too far out of stream, just as you have with Harry and his whole scenario that sort of blew up. So they like to keep that as tight as possible. World War One, if you want to really put things in perspective, was a family war. You had the Czars who were cousins of the Hanover Windsors in Germany and they intermarried. The or the Kaisers and the Czars were also cousins with the three. The Habsburgs were also intermarried. That was a war of bloodline families who call themselves the Royals. Uh, where it comes from Roy as in King, Al as it comes out of the Sumerian transliteration for a god, Al or Ilu also out of there, or El for an angel or a god of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so those are the Rex Deus, as they like to call themselves, the kings of God, because they track their genealogies back to these gods, uh, certainly from... Uh, after the flood to the Baalim of, of Mount Hermon. And in that belief system, they also have genealogies that would track them back to godfathers or angels or gods before the flood as well, because in that tradition, they tend to have not only a, a recreation of giants, like with Gilgamesh, um, but you also have a survival of giants that crossed the flood, as in Apnot-Pishtun in the Epic of Gilgamesh in the flood story. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. I'm glad it would only be 15%. So is that the 15% that seems to control the world? For the most part. So, you know, you don't seem to get a lot of RH negative in First Nation peoples or in Southeast Asia. And there's a concentration that, you know, has ended up into Europe. Um, so about, you know, 25% of when you get into uh, North West France, West France, Central France, Southwest France, 
as opposed to the eastern part and then into the English dynasties and and the uh, uh, Windsors are O negative as an example which is the mm-hmm. most pure and most usable blood for you know blood sharing or things like that right they can mix with any type of blood it's kind of like the gold standard of, of, of blood um, and so that can range anywhere from about 25 to 30% in those regions of RH negative, but the most concentrated level is a very interesting group, and they're the Basques. And the Basques, in their mythology, call themselves Homo Atlantis. I, I am not making this up. They, they actually take themselves as being the settlers that settled and started the civilizations after the flood in Egypt in Sumeria, in Scythia, and then they settled in, you know, south southern part of France and northern part of, of Spain. And their language is not European in any any sort of nature. And they're they kind of come out of nowhere. And they'll run, depending on the surveys, I've been few, seen a number of them, but and so they range a bit, but fifty to eighty percent are Rh negative. Wow. So are these people aware of their blood type, of their genealogy, and, you know, what their families are doing? Yeah, for the for the ones that are in the tighter circles, definitely. And so they, you know, they track their genealogies and they're always looking to keep people within that, that, that family. But the populations over the generations sort of just sort of keep increasing. So... They do a lot of things that they put out there to sort of try and track ones that may have, you know, moved away in generations that disagreements or whatever rivalries. So you have like the, you know, the genealogies that they want you to put in to track your family history. They're using that for, 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 for a database, for, for example. And that if you're going to be invited into the secret societies, you're going to have that genealogy to be invited to get into those, even at the lowest level with, with the Freemasons, uh, to be sort of reintroduced into, into that, that, that occultism. And they believe that the people who have the gene of Isis, who have that genealogy, they have this spark of the divine that they would like to reunite so that at a certain time of their choosing, when they have world government and a world religion established, that you can have this harmonic conversion with the divine essence and evolve back into the giants that were before to become gods in the physical world, so to speak. So you have this, uh, it's a fairly large ideology with, with, in the within within those genealogies, hmm. and we were talking about the serpentine um, beings, and you know the places underneath the earth, like Hades, that kind of place. Is that related to some of the stories that we hear about reptilians? Well, yeah, you see, you hear about reptilians in the ground, and they're um, sometimes more often than not, pictured as a little bit larger than humans in that type of mythos. And so people say, are, are those the Nephilim? Probably not. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not part of the whole sort of hierarchy that's uh, involved with uh, the fallen ones. So Nephilim would be larger, Raphaim would be larger, 
and they would be uh, higher up in the hierarchy. So not only does the army, the Saba, the host of heaven, have uh, rank and order within the angels, you have a rebellious Saba, which is the Hebrew word for army or army of angels, that rule the council of the gods, as they're talked about in Psalms 82, and rule this earth, and there's be fallen angels that are in each of those ranks, and then you have the lower levels of the offspring that they create within the physical world. And that included the Nephilim, but they're basically, those ones have tied out, except for their descendants, which they're more human-like, but carry the genealogies today. Um, and they're bought, when, when those creations were created, they were passed on a immortal spirit that doesn't go to sleep, mm-hmm. like humans do, at least biblically speaking. And so they weren't permitted into heaven either. So they, these are the demon spirits and they are higher up than you would have in these reptilians. So I'm coming back to the reptilians now. So the reptilians, um, they could be one of two different groups. One, biblically, you could get them from the serpent that was in Eden that deceived Eve and the fall of Adam and Eve for eating the, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the word Nahash. And this, this being was intelligent. It could speak. It could walk. Uh, and, uh, it goes back into almost a religious type of etymology into an enchanter or a necromancer if you, as you take that back to its source word. And these beings were totally changed and demoted for the deception and working with Satan to cause the fall. So the Bible has their wings, their legs, their arms, their speech, and their intelligence taken away, and they're forced to crawl on the ground. So the snake, as we know it today, isn't what it was. So if people buy into the concept that Nephilim survived the flood, and Raphaim maybe still survive in the earth, and they were taken off the earth, or however in the earth to survive, or into another dimension, you could rationalize that the fallen angels could have protected some of those, and those could be the, uh, the reptilians, because they are, they were known to be as tall as a camel, so a little, a little larger than, um, and that comes from the Gnostic text, a little larger than, than humans. But there's also a group in the occult classes called the elementals. And the elementals are mostly understood from four different groups that sort of relate to elemental um, uh, things of the earth, fire, earth, things like that. So you have three groups of little ones that are the good-looking fairies, uh, then you have the mischievous fairies like the leprechauns, and then you have the ugly ones like the trolls and the hobbits and the dwarves. And interesting enough, in there, in one of those groups, you have the gnomes who are described as having the keys and guard and the and and the objective of guarding the technology and the knowledge and the genealogies and they have flying machines that come through fairy mounds. I have two encounters in my book if you didn't know it was a fairy abduction and experimentation. You'd swear it was a gray alien because they're described as the same way as the greys. Mm-hmm. But those are the small ones. But these 
uh, reptilian ones are larger. So if they're part of that elemental group, as opposed to the Nakash, as opposed to the Nephilim, then the fourth group is called Salamanders. And they are larger. And they seem to be the descriptions that the occult has of those ones that seem to match up with these accounts of reptilians if they exist that are in the earth. Wow. How about the family lineages? Um, like we're, we're back to that one. You know, there's always stories about the Bilderbergs, Rothschilds, Rockefellers, the Bush family. Are they all part of this bloodline? Well, they're intermarrying into that bloodline. So I would separate the Rothschilds as a degree pure because they come about way earlier than the pseudo blue bloods as they're called in North America. So the Rothschilds were originally known as the Bauer family and Jewish out of Kabbalism were funded by the Royals to create banking after the fall of the Knights Templar that they controlled and was the first major banking system in the world and they needed to replace that. So the Rothschilds uh, became that, that banking portion of the secret societies for them outside the church. They have other agendas that they did to do that within the church. You have a country that is uh, dreamt about by the Templars that's across the seas that they want to develop as a platform to bring about the new world order or world government, you know, centuries later. But it's this long-term plan that they have, and that turns out to be America that is dominated by Freemasons, right, in terms of their founding and things like that. There's nothing new that, that I'm seeing there. And with the purpose to be a model for world government and to be almost the attack dog to bring that about. Now, within that, you're going to have families that are going to start to do well. Generally, they're going to be lower-end groups, might be, you know, fourth son that's told to move over. And you have these people migrating from Europe throughout uh, those years, uh, throughout those generations, who are going to get um, funded. And there's a class of families that are going to be funded even more. So the Rothschilds are the gateway to make this happen for, for the Royals, and they're intermarrying up. And they changed their name to the Rothschilds when they set up their London bank, I think in 1811 was when they changed their name to get a sort of a separation from the Jewish affi affiliation. So they're going to fund the Carnegies. They are going to fund the uh, Rockefellers. They're going to fill, uh, um, fund the J.P. Morgans. All of the so the, the DuPonts, all of those pseudo-bloodlines are going to be funded by the Rothschilds as their stable of agents, as they like to call them. In return for that, they grow the pseudo-bloodlines grow wealthy, but they also earn the right for doing the will of the Rothschilds to have their progeny over the generations continue to intermarry and move up in the culture. Because the purer your genealogies and bloodlines are, the higher up you fit in that hierarchy. It's not fair. No, it's it's a rigged game. <laughs> and, and and you know, for a small period of time, North America in particular was set up to uh you know, ultimately to have a longer term game plan for them, but it permitted 
us to get away and export to the world um, a system other than being dominated by the royales in a feudal system, mm-hmm. right? We actually rose and you had created this larger middle class. I think they're trying to reverse that significantly right now to drive all but the nobility class down to the bottom two classes of, let's say, blacksmith, baker, and very, very poor, serving the wealthy class and the all the large free enterprises would be as before operated through the large oligopolies of the royales, you know, like the East Indian Trading Company, those Hudson Bay companies, those type of companies, and just the small little entrepreneur class to serve them, and then the slave class underneath that. And if you look at that, that's the same four-class system that was all around the world, whether it was in the First Nations in the Americas before the Europeans came, or in India or in China. That is the system of the royales, that there's a few, a very few number of them, but they control all of the wealth, all of the land, all of the businesses, and basically enslaved the rest of, of, of the humans to, to serve them. So much for freedom. Yeah, which is why we need to try and continue to push back their march towards uh, reestablishing the old feudal system. How do we when do that? How do we, how do we stop this? I mean, if this has been going on since biblical times, do... We have a chance, even though we outnumber them, say they're 15% or 85%, what do we do? Like, How do we unite and, and, and correct the situation? We, as long as there's a democracy, whether or not it's a rigged democracy uh, or not, you have an opportunity. If you have a totalitarian system, it's it's all over. I mean, you'll be, unless everybody just hits the streets and mm-hmm. somehow overthrows them but if you don't have qualified planned leadership after that you see those the revolution eat their own anyways and then they come back in and take that power but within a democracy like what we have today even though i know it's very much rigged is is people have to wake up they have to vote in for people who aren't supporting the agenda of the monsters as i would call them um, because they do monstrous things to to the people of the world so if you're seeing anybody left or right that is for in government for perpetual war and globalist, those are the two red flags. And anybody who wants to bankrupt the nation through spending would be the third one because that's part of the great reset, put the feudal system back in. So I don't care what political party you believe in, but those are the traits. Uh, and you need to, we need to be active at the smaller politic level and we need to be nominating people and voting for those people who aren't globalist, uh, reset and perpetual war in nature. So I think there's a heavier denomination amongst that amongst the left, but you have it at the center establishment of the party, which they're sort of understood as is, whether it's, let's say, establishment Republicans or establishment conservatives in Canada and or in England. Those establishment ones are puppets or already bloodlines that are working for the globalists. So 
those are the traits. And once you recognize that, you have to say, we, we can't vote for those people. We have to get, it would take time, but you, you have to wake up enough people to say, focus on their policies that are trying to, that will ultimately destroy our freedoms. Interesting. You know, I was watching news today about the Ukraine, the United States sending these tanks over, you yeah. know, and everybody's like, yay, U.S. Deeper is coming to the rescue. And I'm thinking, we're just creating more death. We're fighting a proxy yeah. war, and yep. the only thing we're producing out of this is death and yeah. suffering. Is is Yeah, because the, there's no planned strategy that's there to win. There's no planned strategy to lose. It's perpetual war. And you're also running a risk that you're going to have Russia get so upset that they could counter with nuclear weapons or expand the war, mm-hmm. which would be, we could be even worse. And like the Biden government, Biden in particular, has been poking Putin in the eye since 2010 that he's going to bring the Ukraine into NATO. He said that all the way through. So when he comes to power, what does Putin think? He's going to put it's, it, Ukraine into NATO. And... and and that's the red line. He said that will never happen. And this is more than politics for Putin. So he's not just going to walk away. And, of course, being an advocate of perpetual war, the Biden government mm-hmm. closes down pipelines and becomes a net importer from an exporter of energy. And that drives the price of oil up. So now Putin can fund his war, just as they did in 1980 when oil prices were high, when they invaded Afghanistan, just as Putin did when he went into Chechia or Georgia. When the ruble is high with, with petrodollars, he can fund the wars forever. In fact, his the ruble is higher now than before the war started. And the only economies that are starting to buckle are the Western economies with the debts that were that we're bringing on and they have no seemingly intention to to win so you have this massive amount of money being spent and the u.s with just i mean just where the interest rates are now um before the new renewals kick in with the higher interest rates that have been put in place the budget is running over 500 billion dollars just in interest payments and you have things like uh, Medicare uh, being not fully funded mm-hmm. and going to go bankrupt. You've got two major systems that are going to go bankrupt in the next three to four years. And the solution isn't how do we balance our books? How do we not spend oh, $140 billion now, I think it's counting, since the Ukraine war that the U.S. has committed? And it keeps growing. How do we not, how do we stop doing these silly things and not destroy our country? They're, they're trying to bankrupt us so they can do the great reset. Hmm. So that way they can get back to the original way of what was just the ruling class and then the lower class. Yeah. It's crazy. Until they bring, until they bring the U.S. to heal because it, it has had a um, rather, I guess, uh, good, rebellious sort of uh, nature to itself. And, and 
they're not always the attack dog. They don't always follow the way. That's because you get some people in there that are saying, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do it that way. No, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it more in our interest, not in the European interest. And so when you look at the greater global politics, it's not that Putin doesn't want to be part of the new world order that they're planning. He believes he has bloodlines through Kiev and the original Russian czars that he wants to rebuild his empire and he wants a larger role in the new world order. She, who comes from the Shah bloodline and dynasty of the Chinese empires, is saying the same thing. And you're seeing this Eastern alliance that are saying, we're not going to do it the way the Europeans want us to do it. And we're going to push back. And that's going to cause, you know, some, some turmoil until they get into that 10 groups of nations that is ruled over by 10 different kings that the Club of Rome that answers into the uh, Committee of 300 has plan for the world. Now, it'll probably look a little bit differently, and the East are going to push back significantly, but they're going to end up there. But it's going to be a rough ride, because the Europeans, who still control a lot of what we do over here, um, are bent on them being the upper level. So, if we look at a little bit of history, for example, in terms of what they've done to position themselves, the, the European families. I mean, not only did they explore the Americas and, and get control over that, but in the early 1900s, when they had a rivalry similar to what happened with the Basques, you understand the Basques have, had had a diaspora. They were pushed out mm -hmm. because they were perceived to be more of a pure bloodline and were threatening the European bloodlines that migrated out of the Middle East. So you had a dispute and a diaspora. So they had a dispute with the, with the Russian Putyanin bloodline, which produced the Romanovs. It's like a junior offshoot of the Putyanin out of Kiev, for the original czars, uh, similar to the Plantagenet family is a junior offshoot of the Anjou family, the older family, the more so. That's the Romanovs. They, through intermarriage, they took over the uh, the Moscow branch of the Putyanin dynasty and set up the Romanovs. So the Romanovs were claiming, were not cooperating with the Western Europeans and claiming a higher uh, position within the hierarchy. So the retort was to create social masonry, as they call it. And one, typically... Rosicrucians are thought to be the ones who are the sponsors of social masonry. That took its first form in communism, mm -hmm. also a national socialism that they developed and funded Hitler through the banking system controlled by the Rothschilds and the U.S. banks um, to take care of the communist problem. But then Nazism got out of control, and so you had to have World War II to get that sort of back under control. But what they did was they unleashed communism and national socialism and that got rid of a kaiser bloodline it got rid of a uh, habsburg bloodline and it got rid of the um romanov czarist bloodline then they exported communism to china and that got rid of the shah bloodline and so they've been using those type of tactics to weaken those bloodlines to center their power and to raise them up to have dominant control in the end time because ultimately 
they're trying to present their dragon messiah. And there can only be one family that's going to rule that world and associated families. So there can only be one, like in the Highlander movies. Mm -hmm. And so you have these rivalries that are, are always going on. And the directionally, they want the same thing, but they all want to be the one that's going to run everything. So they all want the New World Order, but they're all trying to vie for their positions in it. Yes. Hmm. In the end, though, you, what did he win? I, I was just, yeah, well, I was just going to say, once somebody understands the larger context of the geopolitics that are going on around the world and, and expect to see more of these mm -hmm. bloodlines start to come forward, um, you, you, you don't fall for the fake news that we're told. Right. Um, right? You start to have uh, a better understanding that Putin's not going to give up for anything. And eventually, he's going to get maybe not all of what he wants, but he's going to get a better position. But what do they get in the end? They get a reduced human population. Uh, only enough that's left to serve them, as it was in the past. And that um, they get a complete, uh, what they call, unification of the spark of the divine, which will give them a complete link with their ancient gods. And it's going to be like the golden age when their gods walked amongst them. And it's going to be a realm without the evil god of the Bible or any other rival belief systems that they're going to have. So they want the new Zeptepi, the new golden age, the new Atlantis, as the Rosicrucian Bacon framed it in his book, which was... Um, sort of a model for modern understanding of what they're going to work towards. We're going to have, in their belief system, a religion that's universal in the end, um, and that it is in harmony with the sciences, because the sciences and their belief system came out of mysticism in the, in the ancient time, and was developed because of their religion. It doesn't sound so bad, except for Everybody ending up slaves and the population reduction <laughs> part of it. But yeah, for them, it and, sounds fantastic. Yeah, and <laughs> they used to like to drink our blood, and they used to like to sacrifice us in rituals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so those parts I, aren't, aren't so good either. So. I hate being sacrificed. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not that's not what I my ambitions are either. So, and 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 so you know, what does it get them? They've been chasing this throughout their history and but you know they they kind of like it that way i think and uh, do and i'm not even sure why they want to bring out uh bring about this uh, sort of rendezvous with destiny because they want to take on the god of the bible and and they're being told that they that they can win so i, I think they believe that they can win and they can have a realm of their own so where's god in all this like, like where is the original creator does he intervene? Does he sit back and watch it? Or is he just yeah. completely indifferent? Well, it's it's a little bit of both. Uh, not so much the latter. Not Definitely not indifferent, I think, from my perspective. So um, we have seen where he has interceded. Not a lot. Uh, like he interceded with the creation of of the nation of Israel, the interceded with the flood for the restart, interceded with sending the word 
to become Jesus to atone for things. This is part of an overall picture that the creation of humankind is the resolution to the angelic rebellion. And so this is all being played out. So it's not that God wants things to be horrible, but he does things through free choice. You can't impose a belief system on people. You can try as much as you want, but you just cannot. If they don't believe it's righteous or fair or whatever, they're just not going to, they're just not going to believe it. And I think Christianity through the Roman church and a number of Protestant churches over our history has proven that you can't force it on people. People need to choose. We have free choice. Angels had free choice and they were created immortal and they still rebelled because they wanted a realm of their own, as Isaiah 14 talks about, as led by, by Satan. And so humankind was created as the resolution to that rebellion. Understand that God is Alpha Omega in the Christian belief system, as is Jesus. They are above time. They are the beginning and the end, and they understand everything that's going to happen, and everything is being allowed to play out through free choice, with a few intercessions to ensure all the names written in the book of life before creation have an opportunity to leave their name in there or have it rubbed out. And so the angels had free choice to rebel. God created Adam. Angels had free choice to bring Adam and Eve down. After Adam and Eve are ostracized, they had free choice to create the giants. They had free choice to continue this after the flood. This just further, from a Christian perspective, it just further convicts them to the lake of fire to where they're going. But this is all going to play out. And what they didn't realize, as 1 Corinthians tells us, is that they did not anticipate the resurrection. And if they did, the princes, the archangels that run this world, as you take that back to the Hebrew meeting, would not have had Jesus crucified had they understood there was a resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after that, they knew the rebellion was over. So all they can do is deceive more and more people and cause more and more mayhem. So all of this is going to sort of wind through until we get to the end time, which I think we might be in that last big tree generation as we're starting to see things shape up. And I'm not strong on predicting dates or anything like that. I I, I absolutely do not do that. That's a mistake. But I think uh, you can make a good case that we might be in that last generation, the way things are sort of stacking up. So, And it's not that God is going to bring about this end time. We are. The people of this earth are. The people who control the earth are. They want that rendezvous with destiny. And that it's going to be played out and all through free choice. But because they are omnipotent, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they understood all the choices that were going to be made. And they only inserted what they needed to do to make sure everybody whose name was written in the book had a chance to live and choose. Wow. Does this, like, like if, it, if it is affecting like our, our earth here, does this also affect us in the afterlife after we die? Yeah, it, it does because uh, the everything you know you do you're held accountable for. Um, so 
there's a judgment that comes with the end of the resurrections. Um, and whether or not you're resurrected before, we all are going to be judged. Some to everlasting punishment. So the people who take the mark of the beast, um, they're going to be sent to the lake of fire forever as well. And, and to be, there's no way again, you're going to be in punishment there forever, just as the fallen angels are. Um, there are other resurrections where you will, uh, what you do here follows you in terms of what your position might be in the afterlife. Um, if it's done in a righteous way, um, and, uh, you're, you're, you're chosen to, to be that, but there's also a resurrection of everybody else that suffers the second death, but won't be punished forever in the judgment. And so that what you do here on earth follows. Now, Christians don't like to hear this, but, um, People in Christianity think that if unless you were born after Jesus mm-hmm. and accepted Jesus, you can't be resurrected and live forever, except that uh, people like Abraham, who had faith, you know they're going to be resurrected. I mean, our whole faith in a resurrection is based on the faith of Abraham and Jesus as being the one who does the atonement for the sins as our creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the book of Romans, it says that there is uh, for the people who weren't fortunate enough to hear the word of God, that they'll be judged based on what's in their heart and how they apply that in the spirit of what was in their heart. And so that leaves open a significant amount of um, room for God to decide who he wants to have and not. That judgment and resurrection is up to God, and he decides, not Christians. And you also have a reconciliation of Israel before Armageddon. And so you have a resurrection in Ezekiel 37, which most people misunderstand what that is. And they look at that as the dry bones. It's like a zombie apocalypse is what a lot of people. But it's a resurrection of all of people of Israel who are lost in, into the world and Judah um, will be risen because they're going to be judged some for everlasting life and some to the second death, as, as, as uh, Daniel 12 talks about. And that there's going to be a second exodus to mm-hmm. bring the tribes with lost Israel being awakened in the end time. And they're going to be grafted back into the covenant and in preparation with the church for the, the Supper of the Lamb just before Armageddon. So you have all of those people that are yet to be reconciled as well. And again, Christians don't tend to want to look at inconvenient aspects of the Bible. And I don't mean to say that in a snarky sort of way. It's just that my approach to the Bible is, is that you need to make it all fit and not, and and you can't ignore the inconvenient passages. Mm -hmm. So what was this being like for an everyday person like myself? Like, do I have a shot at getting into heaven, or I don't? Well, well, I mean, you always have a choice until you die, right? And so I would encourage people not to take um, a gamble on the life that you live outside of God who you've had knowledge of, mm-hmm. because you can't say that you weren't aware. So I would encourage people not to not to gamble that way. But people can um, search God out. They can search 
and 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 be knowledgeable to make your own decisions. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and, and say that everybody should believe what I believe. I, I I've been on my my own quest, and but if you are part of some of these poly, of the polytheist religions in a significant way, one believes in their belief system that they're the good guys and we're the bad guys, right? Um, and so. If you don't make a decision, if you think being secular is a decision, or not picking one of the of of the of the belief systems, that's not a choice either. Because, you know, as Revelation says, Jesus will spit you out as being neither hot or cold. Like so, not making a decision is a decision. So my advice is is to learn, learn as much as you can, make an informed decision. Because we all are here to do that, and then we have to live with that. I guess and that's what I, I do. And if, yeah, that's all you can do. And I think I've chosen the right side, but if I'm we're wrong for some reason, well, that's probably not going to play out well for me, and vice versa for the other side. So that's why it's really important to make your own decision. But it is okay to search for your own answers. We don't have to yes. be a part of like an established religion and take sacraments and all of that. Is it okay to, you know, seek out our own spirituality, yes. our own way of being yes. a good human being, yep. of healing the world, basically? It, you can, but you're still going to have to come at it from a, how am I applying that? Am I applying that with, let's say, uh, a polytheist belief mm -hmm. or a monotheist belief? Because there's only two. The other one's a, an illusion. Um, so, yeah, you don't have to go to a Catholic church. You don't have to go to a Baptist church. And the problem with Christ, Christianity today is they're more about their organizations than they are about preparing people for what we're going through in this world and what we need to be doing. They're good on some portions, but they, they don't teach the whole Bible. They, I mean, they do not teach prehistory and they do not teach prophecy. Mm -hmm. And that's like most of the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the funny things I've also found about like some of the Christian religions is that they'll say prophecy is evil, but most of the Bible is prophecy. Yes. So. When, when you get into a prophet, there's prophets on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. In, you know, in the Old Testament, the New Testament, they call polytheist prophets false prophets. The test of a prophet in the Bible, um, is that everything you prophesy has to come through. It has to be absolutely perfect. Now, the prophets will, they did two types of prophecies. One was for the time that they lived in. And then other prophecies were for uh, a future time. Mm. So not all of them they could be judged on, but if they had any of the prophecies wrong for their time, oops, yeah, they were stoned to death. So <laughs> <laughs> you had to be perfect. <laughs> um, and, and again, that's not to raise one over the other. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that was sort of a, a standard, but that's also what's going to make it confusing in the end time because there's going to be prophets on both sides. Such a, a, a trick, you know? It's like there's 
in in a way, I almost hope that that both sides are just two sides of the same coin. Is that possible? Well, originally they were, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I no, we're not going to end up there uh, unless I'm unless I'm wrong in in what I've learned. So, um, so it would be it would be nice, but I think there was a threshold that was crossed. Mm-hmm. Just as when whatever threshold is with the taking of the mark of the beast is a threshold that isn't forgiven. And there's only one thing that's not forgiven, and that is blasphemies against the uh, the Holy Spirit or sin against the Holy Spirit. So you can do that by creating counterfeit spirits, as what the fallen angels did. Uh, you can do that by taking... Um, counterfeiting the Holy Spirit as in a mother goddess. Um, you can also do that by counterfeiting the Spirit by bringing something into you that the mark of the beast is likely to do. Um, two things that they'll have to offer in terms of uh, godship in return for taking um, the mark of the beast. Um, and a third that is added on will be an oath that you'll be held accountable to. You shouldn't take oaths. Um, Christians are advised not to, um, because God will hold you accountable. So if you're going to swear a loyalty and an oath at the time of the mark of the beast, you're going to be held accountable for that. Now, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is that the, they have to not only create immortality to give you God-like presence in the physical world, but they also have to give you unlimited knowledge. So, the unlimited knowledge is, is, is the real risk here. I'm sure there's an, if you're doing a, a change of the DNA, which may be part of it with the implant system, that's a piece of it. But the larger piece is, is the connection in this beast system and in the coming nexus of AI, quantum computing, all these other fancy technologies that they're, that they're uh, working on. They're going to come together and, it's going to come together in research that I think is being done at CERN where they're looking for a specific particle called the, the Atman, uh, which comes out of Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the Atman particle is the, is the divine essence, as it's described. It's the mother goddess. What created all of the pantheon of gods, this nebulous mother goddess and this other nebulous thing that the mother goddess creates things from. And this is an invisible thing that's in another dimension that they're searching for that attaches to a measurable particle. So it's kind of like invisible. That's what they're searching for in using quantum computing and AI at CERN. One of the things that they're searching for. And it contains all the knowledge of the universes that sends it instantaneously through all of those universes through quantum entanglement and access into that, into the centralized cloud beast system that, uh, you know, talking in today's language, that will work through your implant, will give you a connection of that to the divine essence, which actually will live in you. It doesn't merge with you. It does the same thing that it does with um, the particles, but it's dominating your being and being with you, and you're counterfeiting and blaspheming what the Holy Spirit does. And that's where it 
that whole combination of things, I think, crosses the threshold for humans at that time to be punished to the lake of fire forever. So when a person takes up the number of the beast, I've heard different takes on, like, is it our social security number, credit card number, microchips, or is it all the above? Well, it's still a developing system, right? Mm -hmm. Um, All of them are steps to that. So... I think the first one came out, and I, I really had a hard look at it, and I think it still is part of it, was the old UPC code that's still used today that deals with ones and zeros. But each of the each of the bars has a number, mm-hmm. and each of those barcodes has two parallel lines, three parallel lines of that is the number six. I think it was either it was in the first set, as I recall, uh, that weren't numbered in the barcode, so you had three sixes in that. Um, and so you can make a good argument back then, well, that's going to be the B system because it's something that could be as a, you know, some sort of stamp or tattoo or a chip that could go in the forehead or in the arm. They're still working on technology that does that, that they want to implement for security reasons, except that they know the pushback, right? So it takes a lot of sort of brainwashing. So I think it is a far greater thing than what we even have today. I think it's a nexus of AI technology with quantum computing, with uh, digital currency, with all the different types of lanes of technology coming into one that makes up that whole system that will have whatever that 666 embedded into it and probably all the way through it. But we don't know... We don't really know from the 666 what they mean by that in terms of how do you arrive at that number. But I think it might have something to do with the basic sort of programming that relates back to the original UPC system. Wow. I have to be a little bit more alert. I'm definitely never going to microchip. I wouldn't do it. Yeah. But... If you go back to the uh, Davos crowd, World Economic Forum that answers into the committee of 300 families, and of course they're <laughs> meeting, just met, and then they met in the fall, and they're talking about introducing the um, new vaccine passports that are designed to replace the existing sort of wallet type of passport, that they also want to merge with the Alibaba system and the Apple system for tracking so they can track you everywhere. And then they also want to merge into that whole system, the social credits as they have in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that they can literally dictate whether you can go to a movie, you can get a loan, whatever, all through this centralized sort of system. Uh, what they talked about in 2018 was that the implant system that was being developed that would merge these lanes of technology into one, into one centralized system, would be asked for by the public because they would want that for healthcare purposes. They would want to be able to have any pestilence uh, cured. They would want it for giving you longer life, that it would work at a digital level and kind of make you sort of immortal. And even below the digital level, I mean, into the genes and into the bot levels, 
um, of quantum computing to rearrange everything to continually give you what you need as you need it. And that this, you know, pestilence is, you know, of the last sort of scourge that we had, which is one of the beginnings of sorrows, the four birth pangs that are going to only get stronger. Um, We had this digital type of medical technology being introduced that was like a rifle shot focusing on specific spikes of, of, of the pestilence. And this is a technology that is still developing. So it could be part of that whole system where it would be part of the medication. So you wouldn't take a jab. You would be automatically medicated digitally through this system. What's really interesting about that is this. We talked about the oligarchies uh, that they want to reinstitute. And when we look at who really benefited from the pestilences, you have a lot of pharmaceutical oligarchies involved. They grew fabulously rich, and they want to get people to take these things on, on a regular basis and just make extraordinary profits. There's a passage in Revelation 18.23. It's about the destruction of Babylon. And it says in that passage in, in verse 23 that Babylon, which is the universal religion that controls the ten kings before Antichrist comes to power, has a system where it controls all the commerce in the world and controls everything in the world. And she controls the world through the King James Version language through sorceries. Other English language versions say magical spells. That's the Greek word pharmakia. And pharmakia is the root Greek word for pharmaceuticals and pharmacy. And she controls the world through that. So I expect there will be an implant system in response to part of the birth pangs and the pestilences and the other horrible things caused by the wars, rumors of wars, famine, and earthquakes that will drive people to say, we have to have this. And also, I think, just to get rid of the whole horrible system of passwords. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's out of control, right? I mean, and so people are just going to stop using anything. Except, and I think a lot of people already do silly things like one, two, three, four, because there's just two, you have to have a passcode for everything mm-hmm. these days. And something that simplifies that and then gives you healthcare. But people, according to the Davos, said they're going to demand it and they expect to implement the system through our healthcare systems because they'll demand it. it. Makes sense. It's so, almost like they're turning us into boards. Yes, and these catastrophes are contrived. These are planned. Mm-hmm. And I think we might have saw that in the last pestilence. I think so too, probably. I don't really doubt it. So I want to take uh I want to thank you for coming on. You know, we have to wrap it up because we have another podcast to do. But I already have you scheduled to come back again. Um, before we wrap it up, like, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and to get your book? So the best place to get hold of me is through my website, which is the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6 with the number 6Conspiracy.com. So if you wanted to ask me a question or uh, if you want uh, some documents, I have a lot of documents on things, so... You know, when I was talking about RH negative or the bass, just ask by name for the topic. Um, 
And so if you get a hold of me through the website, name it by topic, I'll send you uh, a document. I do that at no charge. So if I don't have a document, I'll tell you. But if you just ask a question, I'll answer that. It might take me a month to get back to you, but I will get back to you on it. And you can get a hold of me on the media page where it says contact the author for a interview. When I redo the website, I'll have a better contact the mm-hmm. author location. Um, and that's an email that comes through to me. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. On my website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So you'll get a good feel for whether or not it's the right book for you if you're interested in my book. Uh, and if you did want to buy it, you can go to the Buy Now page. And if you're in the U.S., there's a U.S. page. If you're in uh, Canada, there's a Canada page. If you're overseas or South America, you go to the overseas page and you can get a signed copy from me. If you wanted to link over to buy it from Amazon.com or Amazon uh, or BarnesandNoble.com or Amazon.ca, there's links on that buy page to link over there and also over to the Kindle edition and my new book that I'm hoping to have out over the next three or four months because I'm just doing the proofread now and we're getting the getting it off to the publishers in the next week or so. Um, we'll be also be marketed on the same website. So that's the best place to get a hold of me. Um, I am on uh, Facebook. I'll be looking, you know, for social media. I'll be looking after the new book comes out to see what other social media I want to be on, but I'm still evaluating based on what we've seen over the last few years <laughs> as too. to how these companies <laughs> operate. I'm on them. I'm off of it. I'm back on it. I don't know what to do with social yeah. media. <laughs> yeah. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. I know. So I'll post a link to your website in the notes of this episode so others can uh, get your book, get autographed copies, and ask you questions. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for being on. And hang on for one moment. And I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you.